Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks on Everything Cooperative. Welcome this morning. You know, the National Cooperative Business Association is they're celebrating 100 years, 100 years working on cooperatives, being the main spokesman for all the different forms of cooperatives. And this morning, we have Ms. Reborn on the line from the credit union sector of the cooperatives. Good morning, Teresa. I'm glad to have you on this morning. Glad you're able to come on. And this this particular month, NCBA is is uh, celebrating Women's History Month, and we're glad you're on to celebrate that with us today. How did you get involved in co-ops? Well, I go way back to uh, uh, my first years with a financial cooperative, as in a credit union, was back in Canada, and which is kind of considered the hotbed of the credit union industry in in Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, we had a local credit union that my parents belonged to because, of course, they couldn't get credit from uh, the traditional financial institutions at that time. And they got to know the credit union quite well. And and, um, let's just put it this way. My mother arranged my first job. So um, I got to go work at the credit union and then, of course, went to school from there. But um, that was my introduction at a very, very young age. So you went to the credit unions first. I really wish I had known about credit unions at that early age of my career. I didn't learn about them until about 20 years ago. Celebrating Women's History Month, what's the significance of Women's History Month? I would say that, you know, I know it's called Women's History Month, but it's really about the girls, and that is the the women of tomorrow, and opening up their worlds and helping them to live their lives without the absurd limits that many of us have struggled with as we grew up. And, you know, when we talk about women's lives and women's achievements and the way women have used whatever power they had to break down the barriers and enact change. It's girls and, and boys, by the way, learn that women can be extraordinary leaders. So I think that's the significance to me. You know, NCBA, like I said, uh, NCBA, CLUSA, celebrating 100 years and going back to 1916. You know, wonder what it was like women's suffrage in the United States back then. It seemed like it would have been, we think about it now as unequal pay, glass ceilings. But what do you think it was like in 1916? I think the National Women's Party was formed in 1916 also. The militant group. Exactly. And I I think it sort of um, reminds me of the history of cranes as well, because if you you go back to those early years and, and think about why cranes were formed, it was for, they were really formed to address the issues of that time. And although credit unions can go way back, and we, we have history in, in Germany in the mid-1800s, um, and, um, you know, the first ones actually depended on the charity of very wealthy men for support, which is a bit ironic. But in 1900, credit unions got a foothold in North America, and that was through a Canadian, actually, uh, named Alphonse Desjardins. And he organized a credit union in Quebec. And 
but the reasons were the same to, to organize this, those credit unions back then as it was in Germany 50 years previous to that. People were poor and interest rates were financially crippling and the credit union offered a way out. It was a, is a vehicle to improve lifestyle and that first Canadian credit union was certainly small um, by today's modern standards of financial institutions and in fact I think the first deposit was something like 10 cents and so once he collected all the uh, dollars from folks that were interested, I think he raised all of $26. But, you know, back in those days, Desjardins really did persevere. Um, he devoted a great part of his life to the credit union development in North America in, as a whole, not just Canada. And he founded other credit unions. He founded the first one actually in the U.S. in 1909, and that was back in uh, New Hampshire. Now, there were lots of others that were considered sort of the American uh, fathers of credit unions, and Edward Filene is one of those. But I think, again, think about the era in the early 1900s, and, you know, Filene himself was a very progressive thinker for his time. He he began um, profit-sharing plans for his employees. He instituted very novel, absolutely novel fringe benefit programs. He was um, the founder of Bargain Basement, um, that whole idea in department store operation. But you know, I think more importantly, he allowed his employees to engage in collective bargaining and arbitration. He established minimum wages for female workers, okay? He advocated a five-day, 40-hour week, and that was pretty significant in that era. There was um, also a contemporary of filing, another fellow by the name of Pierre J. And You know, can you say those names a little mm -hmm. bit slower because I'm not hearing them? Sure. Um, it was Edward Filene is the one I referred to as, I guess I would call him the American father of, of credit unions. He's the one that everyone's very much aware of in terms of starting our industry um, for very specific reasons here. And But the other fellow was Pierre J. He was um, also instrumental in bringing credit unions to the U.S. He was... Um, he was a fan of what were called at the time People's Bank, and but those things weren't legal at the time, so he wanted to find a way that we could make those things legal. So these guys all got together. So Desjardins from Canada and, and Filene and, and Jay all got together, and they worked on legislation, which you know actually became the first General State Credit Union Act in the United States, and that was in 1909. Okay. Um, and that movement grew, you know, trust me, pretty steadily state by state, to the point where in 1934 was when President Roosevelt signed the Federal Credit Union Act into law, so it became a big deal and it created a very national system to charter and, of course, to supervise federal credit unions. And the movement grew considerably, and it grew steadily in the 40s and the 50s, and by 1960, believe it or not, there were more than 6 million uh, individuals that belonged to, oh, I guess it was about 10,000 credit unions at that time. We, of course, set up the whole structure to go with that and had, um, you know, share insurance and deposit insurance put into play. We created an independent government agency for it. I mean, it was all legitimized in a very big way. So, you know, there was lots of changes that were brought about in the 70s um, in the kinds of products that um, were offered by financial institutions. But credit unions, too, found that they needed to expand their services. So in 1977, federal legislation allowed our credit unions to to offer the new services to our members, um, and that included everything from, you know, term deposits and share certificates to mortgages. So we became kind of mainstream. So when you say you wish you had known about it a lot earlier, um, it probably really started to get attention back in the 70s. But I think there's a nice connection between why these institutions were created and uh, what women were going through um, during those formative years. Well, you know, back then in the seventies, I knew about credit unions, but I did not know they were cooperatives. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. People, yeah, people still don't, don't know people. that credit unions are co-ops, and that's one of the reasons National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program. It's so they let people know about co-ops and what they can do. You know, it's pooling together ten cents till you can get twenty six dollars, and you can make a loan or. Uh, help people out. You said to have a better quality of life, I think is what you said. Uh, improve lifestyle is what you said. Exactly. And I think um, you just telling me that, that, you know, people just don't know that we're structured as financial cooperatives. And it is a very significant alternative to what, I guess, mainstream banking would be today. So I think we should pause and maybe maybe think about that or talk about that a bit. And that is the difference between credit unions and traditional banks, because I still think it's a big secret. It's a big, and there's perhaps some myth attached to it, too. And, of course, the biggest difference is, as you pointed out, I mean, we're, credit unions are not nonprofit financial cooperatives, and traditional banks that everyone's used to are for-profit businesses. So big difference right there. And as cooperatives, credit unions are owned by our members, so that's who owns us. In contrast, if you think about banks, they're owned by shareholders. So basically... We have members, and they have customers, and and that difference is actually it affects everything we do. It's the lens on which we put everything that we do through. So, because members are our owners, we're not just trying to sell them stuff. We're not just trying to squeeze profits out of them, right? We're we're trying to improve our members' financial lives, and and we do that by offering all of the same products and services that working people need, but at a better value than traditional banks do, and. Unlike banks, a big part of our mission involves financial education, financial wellness. You know, we we work to educate our members about everything from whether it's budgeting or buying a home and reaching financial goals to investing and planning for retirement. And at the end of the day, I mean, we just are structured to help our member owners. So as they have life financial problems, we're there to help them solve them at a much better price and more accessible in terms of just our approach to, to being helpful. So bottom line is, you know, think about it. Banks are for profit and credit unions are for people. That's really the big difference. Well, say it's that again. Say, 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 that, say that again. Say that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> banks are you for bet. profit. The, the bottom line is that banks are, not, are for profit and credit unions are for people. And it's really two different business models. And the fact that you can collectively own your financial institution, and those that make deposits help those that um, need money to borrow. And we can do that at a, at a, at a rates that are certainly superior to the banks. Um, because remember what they're driven to do, they're driven to produce shareholder value. So, you know, preferred stockholders are the winners at the, in the bank structure, whereas members are the winners with a cooperative financial institution. Teresa, I want to give a definition here for our audience. Um, uh, we talk about co-ops, but co-ops can be any business that you can think of. There's t- mm-hmm. uh, about four main types, but there's all kinds of different variations of these types. If the business is owned and controlled by the employees, then it's called a worker cooperative. If the employees own and control it, if the people that use the products or services own or control it, it is called a consumer cooperative and credit unions are owned and controlled by the members that use the services, the people that make the deposits, have the checking accounts. And housing co-ops, another example of consumer co-ops, there's a, also a co-op in Madison, Wisconsin, that is a clinic, a health clinic. It's owned and controlled by the patients. So it's patient-centric members as opposed to shareholders, those people that 
put up money to own it or the doctor-centric. Uh, here, a credit union is for the people, for the members. It's member-owned and controlled. And there are seven principles that co-ops run by. The one that drew me to it is education, and we'll come back to that. We've got to take our first break, Teresa, with that definition. We'll be right back to talk more about the 100-year history of NCBA and cooperatives. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks on with Everything Cooperatives. And we have Teresa Freeborn with us today. He's the president and chief executive officer of Exceed Financial Credit. And when we left off, we were talking about the benefits of a credit union over another financial institution called banks. The banks are normally owned by what uh, Teresa was telling, owned by shareholders, people that put money into the bank and they get shares of stock, and then they vote on the management and more often than not, they are only interested in, or the majority interest is profit. They're concerned about their customers to the extent that they can get profit out of them. Where credit unions are owned by the people that, the members are the people who uh, put their money and deposits in the credit union. They uh, elect the board of directors whose focus is on the people. What's the best products for the people? What's the best education that we can get for the people? How can we get them to be financially educated and make smart decisions. Did I did I capture that okay, Teresa? Absolutely. Okay. Nice summary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And this started you, you you talked about 1909, a uh, little bit more than 100 years ago. And by the way, Teresa, I had a lady Harriet May on the show 2 years ago, pretty much when we got started. Uh Harriet May was the president of a billion-dollar credit union in El Paso, Texas, started off as a clerk and became the chief executive officer, a female, a little short lady that was that is powerful. And she said that five men started that credit union with $5 each. So credit unions and other co-ops pooled the resources, whatever money it is. People can put in pennies or dollars, and then by pooling that money, they, they have some power, some financial power, that when somebody needs something, they can come in and borrow it and with the paying it back with a little bit of interest, not a lot of interest compared to banks. They'll want more and more and more interest. And I like that you can do mortgages now. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's interesting. I know Harriet May very well and she's a very good friend of mine. And her story in the beginning of her credit union is very much like most of our stories and, and a very modest beginnings as usually um, workers of a certain employer gathered their funds to create a credit union in those very early years, 50 to 80 years ago is the typical range of the age of credit unions these days. So we all had exactly that same beginning. I guess the difference was that it was um, at those times pretty much formed by men versus women. So now women are are certainly taking a, a little more increasing role in the leadership of these credit unions throughout the country. Who who are some of the leaders, women leaders, that have influenced you that you say would be your heroes or sheroes? Oh, there there are so many, but um, it's funny. One of the ones that you had mentioned at the very start of the program when the introduction was going on about the first American woman in space back in 1983, and that would be Sally Ride. So certainly um, impressed with that. And, of course, in my industry, given the financial services industry, 
Mickey Seabird. Um, her name actually is Muriel Mickey Seabird. And what's significant about her is that, uh, again, pretty gutsy woman. She was the first to buy a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. And I think she paid about $500,000 back in 1967 for that. But before then, women were only permitted on the trading floor as clerks and pages, um, and they were brought in to fill the shortages back in World War II and, and the Korean War. So the motivation was very different. To, so to see a woman actually enter on her own right in 1967 was pretty phenomenal. And then, of course, I have a particular um, bone to pick with um, just the, the general running of our country, let alone my sector, in terms of women's involvement and participation. And was delighted when uh, Shirley Chisholm in 1968 was the first African-American woman elected to Congress and tried uh, in terms of making a bid to the Democrat Party's um, candidates for president in 1972. But, again, that was a pretty gutsy move. And if you look today, Vernon, I mean, unfortunately, uh, although women make up 50 percent of the population in the country, in fact, just a little bit more than 50 percent, you know, if you look at mm-hmm. our congressional representatives, uh, less than 20 percent are women. You look at the Senate, less than 20 percent are, are women. Keep going and look at the Supreme Court. Look at I mean, it's just the way our uh, the world is sort of run is just not in, in sort of direct relation to the number of very capable women that could stand up and and take some of these posts. So we've got a ways to go still. You know, Jessica Gordon-Nimhard, and that's who I was talking about in the beginning, wrote a book called Collective Carriage. In her book, one of the things that she she pointed out was in the African-American experience with co-ops, and there's a great history, which she's gone through and collected a lot of it, that a lot of the uh, people that push the cooperative movement in the African-American experience with women, that women were very much mm-hmm. involved in. And I, I, I've asked on this program, I've asked you, why are women so much involved in the, in the cooperative movement? Do you have a sense of that? I do, and, and perhaps it's more, in, again, in my, in my industry. So I'm going to talk about financial cooperatives because I know that very well. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it has a lot to do with the values that, cooperatives represent and cooperative principles are about empowering the powerless you know and lifting those up who are struggling with societal and and economic inequalities and i think my my career provides a pretty good example of this is that you know early on i wanted to be in charge but there weren't a lot of role models for women who aspired into the the c-suite back then the, the chief suite of, of a corporation and the old boys network was was pretty much in its heyday and they were certainly helping you know promising young men along with their careers but uh, for the most part women were kind of you know at arm's length and but let's be honest you know few of us whether you're uh, male or or female we, we don't just pop out of the womb with skills for <laughs> negotiating and presenting and networking and other key markers for leadership i know i didn't and mm-hmm. i had to learn those things and you know, throughout my career, I benefited tremendously from mentoring and support from some very smart credit union leaders. And, of course, all of them were men in, in as I was beginning and as they were for, for Harriet. And a lot of the African-American women that um, also started out, they had men mentors and they had to. And because there weren't many women leaders back then, so there was no one for us to be mentored by in terms of uh, a female. And I know for me, I'm very indebted to those what I call gender-blind men. And, um, you know, they upended that old boys' network. They really did. And 
and they thought that uh, women like me could amount to something in business. So again, I, I credit their cooperative values, and but it goes along with some human decency and some fair-mindedness as well. And I just think that this whole cooperative movement provides a, a very fertile ground for women to get involved with business in, in this model. It's just, just our principles. It's just how we're structured. It's more accessible. But I also want to caution us that um, in, I know in my business, in my industry, there are probably more women. It's something like about you know 75% of financial institutions that are cooperative, financial cooperatives are run by women. 75%? But there's a reason for that. Okay. And I would say it's because they're so small. The institutions are so small. And men just aren't interested in those small institutions. Okay? So we get a little bit of a leg up there. But where, where you start to see our involvement diminishing is as the institutions get bigger. They're still primarily the domain of men. And I think, I know for one thing, I just looked at some research. And for credit unions, for instance, that are over a billion, we are, um, Harriet's Credit Union is obviously over a billion. All of these institutions that are sort of substantial and getting larger every day, it's 14% are run by women. And it's getting less. It's not progressing and getting better. It's actually getting worse as those institutions get bigger. So it's a great place to start because you have opportunities that men, quite frankly, don't want. So you can get involved with a small institution but know full well that there still is a bit of a glass ceiling there. You know, it's not really saying let's, let's champion women at the very senior levels of the larger financial cooperatives. So we've still got some, some work to do there. You know, um, Judy Zigwack, who is now the uh, president and executive director of the National Cooperative Business Association, was on. And I asked her the question, and she said it was more like that women, by their nature, at least this is my what I took from the conversation. I, I don't want to put words in her mouth. But women, by their very nature, are more cooperative, nurturing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's sort of the cooperative movement fits, particularly the values that you talked about earlier, with women, women's very, very, very nature. Now, have you had an opportunity to look at Michael Moore's new movie, Where to Invade Next? No. You need to look at it uh, because, uh, well, I I didn't knew nothing about it. I went to look at it. There were only maybe 10 people in the movie theater. But he had a section about women. And um, in, in the Arctic, I think it is, in 08, the only bank that did not fail or go under a half time, hard times, was a bank that was started and run by women. And it was that they didn't take mm-hmm. the big risks that men take. They don't get out mm-hmm. on the limb. They, they, and so when he was interviewing uh, three chief executive officers, one of them said women solve problems with words, not fists, not guns. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was quite interesting. And they don't have to try to figure out who's more manly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I yeah. find it very, very interesting, and maybe that's why what Jessica found out in the African-American experience is that the – cooperative movement uh, was fueled by more women. And I was also thinking it might be because men were out fighting wars, but that may be the case and may not be the case. Well, I totally agree with you, Vernon. And, you know, if you think of sort of the what, what men are expected to be, they're expected to be confident and opinionated and assertive, and and women are expected to be nurturing and, and compassionate and passive. So we, women just aren't top of mind when it comes to what you think of when you think about a leadership. So we call that the second generational bias. And I think by and large, uh, it's still alive. Uh, people do think about this. 
it's unintentional. I don't think people are going through, you know, selection of CEOs saying, I, you know, I, I'm not consciously not selecting a woman. I think it's just top of mind leadership is always, you think, men. Okay, and I, I'm going to go back to when I started in the industry in the 70s, and I worked with no one but women except my bosses. They were all men. And the only other exception was the men that were being groomed to be managers. Mm-hmm. But the rest was, it was a, you know, it's called the pink ghetto. You know, I mean, we were all, it's all women. And so it was, it was a bit of a sea change there in sort of the late 70s where you could start to, men would start to appreciate what women were bringing to the table. And why wouldn't we make room for them at that senior level? So, but it's, it's interesting. There's a bit of a hangover there. And I think it's going to be some time. And perhaps when my 33-year-old daughter is, um, you know, in her 40s, the number of leaders will be sort of more on that 50-50 level. I'm not sure, but um, it's truly, it's this, this bias that we have, and it's, it's unfortunate, but it's real. It's real. Well, you really, I'm African-American, and through my life, uh, I've, I've looked at what I call systemic discrimination, and that's what you're talking mm-hmm. about with women, too. We, we face that with glass ceilings all the time. Uh, that that it's sort of just expected that who is going to lead is white man. And so everything is focused with white man, particularly when they start looking at the career path upward to the president or to the chairman of the board. It's normally a a handful or a dozen of white men and not not Mm -hmm. African-Americans and not females. So, yeah, I've experienced the same kind of thing in in my world. Exactly. So there's there's probably a couple of things that come to play there. And one is, first of all, are women, or in in your particular case, black men, are they are they viewed as sort of having all of the leadership qualities that are required? And the reason why someone may not say yes is because they don't see them in those roles, and there there are no examples. I mean, the role models are few and far between. So that's the first step, right? Is to we need to get you know, some diversity at that top level so that people can, and young people coming in can look and say, see, it's possible. I can be everything I want to be. They're taught that, but then when they get into a corporate world, they see that that's not what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And, you know, and, and the other piece that I think of when, when, as you're speaking is that, you know, there's no suggestion that women need to become more like men to be successful here. I think what has to be proven here is that, you know, women that own and, and, and exercise would have long been regarded as their leadership liabilities, which is that sensitivity and perceptiveness and connectedness and compassion. All those leadership attributes, mm-hmm. you combine those with the strengths of men. And I, I know we're going to improve the outcomes of business decisions. We're going to make better decisions in those boardrooms. So when you talk about, you know, those businesses that run better, with uh, how about a 50-50, how about a, just a really good equitable distribution of talent and not just, you know, white males running everything. It's, it's, there, there is so much value in bringing all these perspectives to the table to make a decision. That's why those companies are more profitable, you know, and that's why they, they run better. One of the main strengths of America is the diversity that we have here. It's just how do we capture it and mm-hmm. use it to the benefit of American corporates and so forth. But back to this Michael Moore movie, they said in, in the Arctic, the law was passed that you had to have 40% or more women on all boards. 
and mm-hmm. you had to have 40% of men on all boards, and you could not have mm-hmm. 60% or more of either. So you had to have mm-hmm. between 40 and 60% of men and 40 and 60% of women, and maybe we need something like that in, in, in the U.S., and perhaps we could even get more genius going if we talked about uh, how many Native Americans, African Americans, Hispanics, Asian. If we got the whole mix going by law, <laughs> that would be very, very interesting <laughs> The decisions. Well, you know, but it takes it takes a leader to be aware of that, and it takes a lot of courage for some folks to stand up. So I look at my industry and I think, okay, well, well, look at my credit union. So what are we doing to to further advance women? I can be the CEO here, but what am I doing to ensure you know that we're going to continue to do that? I mean, that's the real question, and I think every institution needs to ask themselves that question and ask it in their boardroom, you know, and that includes board composition. You know, I'm delighted to tell you that five out of our nine board members are women, you know, including our board vice chair who happens to be African-American. You know, our five-person executive management team includes three women, including me. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a chief marketing officer, African-American, and our chief risk officer is Hispanic. And our management team is strongly female, and it's diverse, and it's, you know, we've got 26% African-American, 18% Hispanic, and I think it's like oh, close to 15% now Asian. There's, it's 40% white. And I, I'm going to tell you that I, I consciously have to be aware of that as a leader. And I think there's the first problem is that I don't know if every leader out there is truly aware of, first of all, what are those numbers? Can anybody else rattle those off? I suspect not. People don't think of it. But if you start to think of it, you get a little embarrassed that you, that you haven't actually, you know, come up with that kind of distribution. And I'm just saying that you've got to start counting. You've got to know where you stand with your gender balance, and you've got to know where you stand with your um, ethnicity balance. You really do. And if you get that balance right, that's when you're going to make better decisions. There's just no question. And that's the reason for it. You make better decisions for your customers. You make better decisions for your company. And therefore, you have a much more successful and stronger company, providing yes, the services exactly. that you're, you're there to do. I mean, it, it just makes all this sort of common sense, but a lot of people don't look at it. And, and when we start talking about leadership, we could spend the next two hours talking about this political presidential election and the different kinds of leaders that could come out of that. But I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. No, I know. Neither am I. I would love to, but no, not today. But it's interesting because you mentioned sort of almost what I guess we called it in the 60s was the affirmative action programs. And is it time, because a lot of countries have mandated that they must increase their um, board composition to women and other ethnicities by a certain time period? And we're talking... You know, having 40% women, having 40%, you know, um, uh, at that at that board table, the very senior board table. Can you imagine what happens then if you get to a place where you have gender balance, and then that board starts making decisions on the very senior people that will run the organization, as in the CEO? You've got more women at the table that are thinking about that. So the chances are pretty good you're going to think about a woman leader a little more often. And... Again, I look at my industry. We'll take our second break. I sit on a lot of... I'm sorry, but we have to take our second break. And so I'd ask everybody to don't touch it down. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, uh, Everything Cooperative. Uh, National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. Communities that are economically challenged, which brings also to mind Flint, Flint Michigan and other communities. Uh, Teresa, what would it be like to start a worker co-op, a food co-op in Flint, Michigan? They say they don't have a food store, or I don't know if they have a credit union in Flint, but get a group of people together to create a credit union so that the poor people there can have resources to do the things that they need, whether it's buying a car or a computer or, or down payment in a co-op, a housing co-op. So there's all kinds of ways that this co-op can help poor communities and National Co-op Bank is that's their charter. That's their mission. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Have you worked with the NCB at all in, in, in your bank? Did you, Have you had services there? No, I have not. But I, your comment about Flint, I, I guarantee you there's a credit union there. Okay. <laughs> so there's absolutely opportunities for that kind of uh, assistance and involvement and participation in that community. Well, I did have a question from a Herb Fisher out of the National Association of Housing Co-ops. He wanted to know, if we could get more, like I think it's the sixth principle, cooperation among cooperatives between credit unions and housing co-ops, particularly affordable housing co-ops. Sometimes they're the $2,000 membership fee, $5,000, $10,000 membership fee to go into a housing co-op. And then maybe the credit unions could loan that money to the potential owner of a housing co-op. Have, have you ever looked at different ways of working cooperatively with either housing co-ops or food co-ops or other co-ops? Yes, we do provide exactly that kind of lending to those that um, are requesting it. So we do have all, all sorts of lending programs that do speak very much to exactly what you're describing there. Now, where so is that, that certainly is available. We'll find that most credit unions do. Where is Exceed? We are located in El Segundo, California, is where our headquarters is. But we have uh, our, our operations are actually brick and mortar, uh, as in branches, in six states. But we um, operate in 43 states in total now. So we actually, um, because of our remote nature, uh, we have the ability to service any potential members throughout the country. So you you have brick and mortar um, in six states, and you operate, I guess, computer-wise in 43 states? Yes. In other words, we can operate in every state. There's nothing restricting us from doing that. We were born out of a workplace credit union, as most credit unions are. Okay, they start with um, a company wanting to provide a benefit to their employees. And so ours came out of the um, tech industry. We were um, first started up as scientific data systems out of El Segundo, California. And when Xerox Corporation bought scientific data systems, Xerox didn't have a credit union. So we became Xerox's credit union. That's where the X comes from in our name. So then we brought in other workplaces that needed a credit union in, in various areas, and we now have over 300 workplaces that use our credit union. And there's always a way to find a way for everyone to join our credit union. There are many uh, associations that you're going to find that you're members of, uh, perhaps cooperatives, for instance, and if you're a member of that cooperative, you can also join our credit union. So there are many ways for you to take advantage of a membership in Exceed, as well as any other credit union out there. There's there's a, a very there's over six thousand credit unions in the country, and that we're very much predisposed to working with other cooperatives. 
So XSEED, that's X-C-E-E-D. So what's your webpage? How would people find out about you if they said? Dot org. Dot org. X-C-E-D dot org. One more time. And if you're looking for a credit, okay, X-C-E-E-D dot org. Okay. And you can also go to find a find a credit union dot org and you can look for a credit union in a specific um, town that you happen to live in and that helps you locate one as well as a big uh, location engine that exists that we all um, make sure that we're involved in so that there, there really no reason everyone can join a credit union there's a credit union for everyone in the country and it's, it's interesting because I, I guess I spend most of my time when I'm out in, in a social setting because people say, well, what do you do for a living? So then I can talk about how I'm a CEO of a, a credit union, which is a financial cooperative, and I talk about the, the very basic structure of, of this credit union and my industry. And without hesitation, everyone always says, you know, I didn't know I could have any of that. I didn't know I could participate in a credit union. And once we start talking about um, our rates are better, our fees are better, our personal approach is better. It's it's done. I mean, I hate uh, all I can think of is that it's very close. It's very an altruistic model here. I mean, it's it's. I I've always said to people, I feel I do noble work. It's noble. It's it's not about squeezing you know profit out of every one of the the members that we're working with, and it's about doing right by the member. It's about making sure that. Um, that our members get the absolute best possible advice, even if the advice is to, to have to go down the street and, and get a better deal on something we can't do. And, and that's just how we look at it. It's, it's, it's not just for members. It's about educating the public and, and giving them tools that they need to, to solve their financial problems. So it's just a very different view. And once I start talking to people about this kind of structure, they go looking for a credit union. I mean, because it, it's just like you just need to be told about that, and you can see the difference. It's, it's palpable. Can you go back through? It, we're on an elevator, or we're at a party. We got a drink in our hands, and you say you work for a credit union. What do you tell me the mm-hmm. benefits of being a cre- in, in a credit union? What are the benefits? Well, first of all, I try and get a, a feel for the demographic or the psychographic of the individual I'm talking to. So, for instance. If I was in a room of millennials, you know, the young, young guys, and a lot of them have just followed their parents' direction in terms of banking. So they would, you know, if their, their parent banked at Chase, they're, they're, they're banking at Chase. But quite frankly, you know, they don't want to sort of follow the man, if you know what I mean, right? They're kind of anti-establishment. So we represent that in a modern way, if you think about it. We, we represent, um, don't get sucked into all that big corporate stuff. And becomes a number, you know, basically is what you're going to be at Chase. But instead, why don't you come to your credit union and here's what we can do. And the whole point is, is you're helping other people. They like to hear that. They like to hear that it's, that's how a cooperative is structured. They like the idea of cooperatives. It's, it's, it's an easy sell to that group, but they don't know that they can access it. So in my elevator speech to that group, it would be more along the lines of, do you want to participate in your financial institution? I mean, how cool is that? And more and more credit unions are reaching out and looking for younger people to be on their boards to represent that group because that is tomorrow's group. We're, we need to structure products and services that meet the needs of that group. So 
they like it. They're they're pretty much predisposed to it, just just given you know their very nature. So that's how I would do it with that group. Now at the same time, I'm going to go complete opposite and say, you know, we 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 actually provide a private banking service to corporate heads. So the large companies that we deal with, we will provide a suite of products and services that help them navigate their finances. And and guess what? They're not much different than yours and mine. Okay, they just make a lot more money. So it's just it's just a, a different you know um, amount of money that we're dealing with. But their services are still the same. Their products are still the same. And quite frankly, I think that the big banks have sort of built this into some sort of you know a private banking, as in you know for the very very affluent. And what it really means, if you cut through it all, is they're paying a lot more fees than you and I are paying. Let's put it that way. And they may get someone phoning them every now and then, but quite frankly. The value is not there. And once they hear what we have to offer, and once we, they see the kind of dollars that they can save, even at a, as a very well-paid person, they're in. And we, we have no problem converting them. It's, but it's about getting that word out. So I, I just think we talk in terms of value. We talk in terms of just how we approach consumers and how we're really interested in your interests. What, what, what are your interests? How do you what approach customers? I come in, mm-hmm. Teresa, and I want to, I want to go get a car. And mm-hmm. um, th- do you have somebody sit down and I fill out the application? They talk to me. Is it totally on credit yep, score that you're going to do it, or do you sort of try to figure out what kind of person I am? What, how do you do this? Yeah, well, we we do have that sort of traditional approach, and more and more um, people are wanting to do things online. So we certainly have that available. So what we did is we did a little bit of a hybrid, okay, for our institution. And we have what's called the member experience centers. So what we allow our members to do is they, they basically can FaceTime us. You know, they can they can do it on their smartphone or on their iPad, and they can have a face-to-face chat with one of our associates here. And we do start with, what are your dreams? Like, what are you looking to do? Okay, we start with all of that for sure. But, you know, people don't like to, to approach anyone and talk about their finances. Usually they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed they're not more ahead than they they should be at this point in their lives. So you've, you've got to sort of disarm that. You've got to get them feeling comfortable. And I think that's what we're really good at is allowing people to kind of let their hair down. And really, we can really help them better if they really come clean with us and tell us, you know, what they want to do and where they think they're stuck and how can we help. We have a loan for everyone is kind of our philosophy. Hmm. We don't say no. We just figure out how can we, how can we help these people. And it could be simply improving their cash flow because that's usually the, the, the most obvious that we find is that people do have car loans somewhere else. And once we take a hard look at what they're paying, we know we can do better for them. So can you imagine if we can free up an extra $100, $200 a month for someone? It's big. It's major. And what if they could put that $100 or $200 a month toward a credit card bill that they've been unable to pay down? Or what if they could just save it? You know, how, how can we help them do that? But that's, it's kind of a holistic look. We don't like to just sort of fill an order. To us, that doesn't help anyone. You know, um, we've had one, some of our corporations go through uh, furloughs, you know, where, you know, in the recession, there were some tough times. And people had were, were cut back and people were told, well, you're going to take a, a mandatory two-week vacation without pay. I don't know about you, but I, I couldn't suffer a no paycheck for a two-week period. It would be hard. And... So what we did is we just 
swoop right in and say, look, we're going we're gonna to look after that for you. We're going to give you a really good deal on what your two-week paycheck would be. We're going make to it, make a loan to you. But more importantly, can we look at everything else for you? Can we, can we see if we can actually structure things differently to help you in your financial life? The number one stressor in a workplace is financial. And you might think in, in you know, some organizations that it would be, I don't know, something to do with the work, you know? It has nothing to do with the work. People are stressed out financially, and they need someone to talk to. So that's kind of our, you know, that's our specialty, is to be able to find out what's really wrong and how do we come up with some solutions for you. So you've just, you've just said what, what I say on this program, co-ops are formed to solve community problems. That's why a lot of credit unions were formed. They normally provide a better product, and that is, in this case, your product are loans and education, but you provide a product that somebody needs. You try to sit them down and work with them and train them to focus on them and what's best for them, and you normally do it at a lower price, as uh, competitive or lower price, so that your interest rates would be lower because you don't have profit in there, and so without the profit by itself, without having to have this huge profit, you can have a lower price, but also if you're managed better, uh, making better decisions, less risky kinds of decisions, so you don't have as much. Can you tell me what your default rate is and how that compares to the bank loans? Yes. Um, In sort of in the credit, let's just take even one category. Let's talk about credit card realm. Ours is like 20% of the delinquency rate of any of the big banks. It's significantly less. So, so we, we actually put so much into that relationship with our member that we have members that go bankrupt and come back and pay us back later because they feel this commitment to the cooperative structure of the organization. It's phenomenal. So you can have a lower interest because you have less defaults and you don't have, mm-hmm. that's what I was getting to, you don't have this yep. huge profit that you must make. So you can provide a lower interest on a mortgage or on a uh, car loan or interest or a consolidation loan to get the get their cash flow working better. So you try to structure something. You have a loan for everybody. I like that model. I love that model. A loan mm-hmm. for everybody. Just trying to figure out and working with them to figure out how, what is the best loan. Exactly. And you know what? You may start off with a, a higher rate because we have to risk, you know, risk, risk rate these loans. We, we can't give, you know, the pristine FICO score the same rate as, say, someone who's really struggling because the risk is higher, and it's not fair to our members to, to simply, you know, be too, you know, a wanton in our, in our decision-making there. But what it comes with is today this is your rate. Come back and, and let's take a look at this in a year, and let's see how you're doing. And you're making those payments on time. Guess what happens? Your credit score has just improved. And because of that, we can rewrite that loan now at a much better rate. I mean, we're interested in moving these people forward. If, if at the end of the day we can show some progress there in terms of helping people get on the right track. Lots of young people mess up their credit at a very early age. And, you know, our goal is to get them back on track at mainstream so they too can buy a house one day. So it's that kind of thing. So do you find you have more women uh, clients? Uh, yes, we do. And in fact, um, and I wish I had those stats with me right off the top here, but we do have more women members. Um, and we also find that women are the primary decision maker in a household, more so than ever before. Mm-hmm. We have more working women than ever before. 
at substantial breadwinners and equal to um, their spouse or their partner. So, yeah, the world's changed that way for sure. And women, I think, are more, first of all, women are, they find the whole financial services industry quite confusing. Um, and it's because I think it was built for men by men, okay? okay? And the products and services are described that way, and they're intimidating. They're terribly intimidating. So we try to take the mystery out of all that because it really isn't that that difficult to understand. It's just the way it's been presented. It's kind of a mystery. So we're trying to trying to make that a little more simple for for um, all of our members, but um, directed mostly at the women side as well. Teresa, what's the last word you have to say? Well, we got two more minutes. So what would you like for our members, um, our listeners to know about co-ops, about Women's well, Month, about our history and what, what we can look forward to the future? Well, because I've spent um, quite a bit of my last couple of years talking about advancing women in leadership in my industry, I can't affect the world and I certainly can't affect um, government structure, but I can certainly make some noise about my industry and advancing women in leadership. And I would say that, um, you know, it, it's time to see a significant increase of women in power in cooperatives in general. And I'd say that, um, you know, first things first, let's start counting. Let's start really acknowledging how far and what progress we've made in that realm to get sort of that um, gender balance in the workplace at the senior level. It's, it's easy to do, and it makes such good sense. So that's really the point that I'd like to leave everyone. If you think everything's okay, go do some counting. Okay. <laughs> I suspect you'll find that it's not. Well, I'll just add from Michael Moore's point of view, you get better decisions with women in control. Have a great day, everybody. Have a great week. Teresa, thank you so very much for being on and for all of this great information. Banks are for profit. Credit unions are for the people. Bye now. Thank you so much. All right.